Hello everyone, it's Dr. Sam. I'd like to welcome you to my Eye Clarity Podcast. This is a show that offers cutting edge information on how to improve your vision and overall wellness through holistic methods. I so appreciate you spending part of your day with me. If you have questions, you can send them to hello at drsamburn.com. Now to the latest Eye Clarity episode. Hey everybody, it's Dr. Sam and I want to welcome our next guest and uh, lecturer. Her name is Megan Ramos. She is a Canadian clinical educator an expert in the field of therapeutic fasting and low carbohydrate diets. She has guided more than 14,000 people worldwide. She's co-author of the New York Times bestseller, Life in the Fasting Lane. Megan, welcome to the summit. I'm so excited to have you on. I guess my first question would be, how did you get involved with intermittent fasting? <laughs> it's kind of a, an epic collision of sorts between my own personal journey and my professional journey. From a very young age, I was interested in preventative medicine. My mother is just one weird medical anomaly that we think a lot of her health issues were triggered by mold exposure. Mm -hmm. And that mold exposure led to some tumor growth. And there was just a lot of suffering because she was such a young woman at the time and nobody expected her to have all of the issues that she was. And they were just treating her symptoms without ever looking for the root cause. So from the time I was in elementary school, I wanted to be that medical uh, mystery solver and really identify root causes of disease. So. Uh, from a young age, I got interested in medical research. Uh, when I was 15, I had the opportunity to work actually in the largest medical research facility, um, uh, clinical research facility, uh, which was actually based in Toronto at, at the time, uh, and it was in nephrology. So this group of kidney specialists were trying to detect kidney disease earlier, and they were working on all of these different types of lifestyle interventions to slow down the progression of kidney disease. So at 15, this is a total dream for me. Uh, and it very much so was because I really valued their mission. And I stuck around high school, university, after university, uh, became my full time job. Well, I took some time off before uh, the plan was to go to medical school. But none of the interventions were working, and it didn't really matter how early one detected kidney disease because it, there was just this huge onslaught of type 2 diabetes uh, just ravaging people's kidneys. I mean, we went from having a handful of people on dialysis to having thousands of people on dialysis 24-7. Uh, and from the time I was 15 to the time I was 25, and, and all of that was due to type 2 diabetes. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to go back, go to medical school, because it just seemed like all mainstream medicine could do uh, was hopefully you know, make people comfortable as disease ravaged them, and, and it was really heartbreaking. So in my mid-20s, when I was trying to figure out you know, what I was going to do uh, with my life, I continued to do research at the clinic, but I thought, 
lady, you've got to get it together yourself. You know, I had stayed relatively slender, but was diagnosed with these metabolic health issues like fatty liver disease when I was a kid and polycystic ovarian syndrome when I was 14. And they hadn't gotten worse, but they hadn't gotten better. They hadn't gone away like most of the doctors thought they would because I was so skinny. They didn't understand why I had these diseases of obesity. In hindsight, I was just a skinny sack of fat. I, I was not very muscular and uh, very brittle. I would break my wrist every time I slipped on the soccer field at school. Um, so uh, looking at my family history and my own history, I decided that I needed to do this big intervention on myself. So I started doing all the things we were doing with patients. Uh, not really thinking about how it didn't work for any of them. So why the heck would it work for me? Uh, and you know, within 18 months, I was a full-blown type 2 diabetic who had gained an excessive amount of weight. So I went from being sort of um, skinny on the outside and fat on the inside to just being fat all around. And it was just awful. Uh, then being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes was, was devastating. So one of my colleagues, uh, nephrologist, Dr. Jason Fong, he had actually started looking into intermittent fasting after being inspired by a friend uh, who had improved her hemoglobin A1C uh, accidentally through fasting. She was fasting for spiritual reasons following a divorce. And Jason was very inspired by this. In, in Toronto, we're the most multiculturally diversity in the world. I'm in San Francisco now, but <laughs> in Toronto. Um, and so many of our patients fasted for different religious reasons. So Jason did a deep dive into this and was just totally blown away. And uh, us working and collaborating together at the clinic, uh, he was very excited to talk about this. And I was really excited to try. It made so much sense to me once I took the time to listen to them speak about it. And as someone who was born in 1984 and grew up in a house of fast food, uh, I had zero cooking skills at the time. So reinventing my diet didn't seem impossible. So I started fasting, got healthier. That gave me the energy to start to reinvent my diet. And within six months, I lost over 60 pounds, brought my hemoglobin A1C to 4.6%. That fatty liver and that PCOS that didn't go away went away. And uh, I was exceptionally healthy and I continued to lose weight to a total of 86 pounds. And uh, we were inspired by my results. Our, our colleagues were inspired by my results. And then we opened up what was at the time the first fasting clinic in North America based in Toronto. Well, that's a very inspiring story. And, you know, I certainly get a lot of inquiries through my clinic, my social media, community. So what we want to know is how does it work? How do we get involved with uh, fasting and, you know, how do you see it working? Yeah, absolutely. Um, with fasting, um, I think one of the reasons that we have gotten into such terrible metabolic state, there's so many of them, but one mm -hmm. of the largest ones is just this chronic eating that we do nowadays with industrial uh, agriculture, uh, just food is readily available all of the time. And all we do is snack and graze throughout the day. Um, you know, there's the underlying cause of obesity, metabolic syndrome, type two diabetes is this condition called insulin resistance. So it means that we've, we've built up toxic levels of insulin in our body, which is a condition called hyperinsulinemia. And that leads to the development of this insulin resistance and this is truly that it's 
synonymous with the term metabolic syndrome. It's the exact same thing. It's just the, the cause uh, of it is this development of insulin resistance. And, and we sort of develop it when it comes to eating and to, to fashions. We eat foods that are highly refined and processed. Uh, this can be sugars or it can be fats, like seed oils, for example. And this causes our body to produce an ex exceptional amount of insulin in results of the consumption of these foods. So we get this high volume of insulin produced when we're eating these foods. But then we also can develop insulin resistance by having that chronic stimulus of insulin being produced all day long, whether it's processed and refined foods or not, regardless of what we're, we're eating, we're going to have a bit of an insulin response. Of course, we can choose things like olives and almonds and have a much more mild insulin response, but that chronic, chronic stimulus of insulin still leads to the development of insulin resistance. So the quickest way to really try to get our health back on track uh, is to just eliminate snacking. You know, go back. I, I jokingly tell everyone to, you know, go on Amazon Prime or something and find an episode of Leave it to Beaver. You know, you know, he was always getting in trouble for trying to snack before dinner. He had to save his appetite for his meal. Or he would want to snack after dinner, and his mom, June Cleaver, would say, well, you didn't eat enough of the broccoli on your plate. I mean, this is how we, we evolved, you know. Uh, yes, there was mechanisms for food preservation, you know, throughout uh, human history, but we didn't have caveman covers with caveman Cheerios <laughs> and caveman cookies. Um, we were not intended to snack and to graze all day long. So we want to go back to sort of the, the leave it to beaver schedule, we jokingly call it, where our grandparents and great-grandparents grew up on and just sort of eating three meals a day. And by doing so, you're naturally going to start fasting in between those meals and then doing an overnight fast. So it's equivalent to about 14 hours. And there's great health benefits to doing even a fast that is 14 hours. And then from there, if someone is either looking to do a little bit more therapeutic fasting uh, or needs to, maybe there's someone who's on you know, over 100 units of insulin and has, wants to lose 150 pounds and has fatty liver disease and other metabolic health issues, um, then we would start cutting out one meal a day. And so most people would skip breakfast and then they would end up doing sort of a 16 to 18 hour fast. Uh, and then maybe going to doing some of the more longer therapeutic fasts, like a 24-hour fast two or three times a week, where they would skip breakfast and lunch, and then sometimes into a full-day fast, or even doing some multi-day fasts, depending on their health goals. But we always encourage people to look at it like uh, like going to the gym and, and doing strength training. Um, it, when someone is brand new at the gym with a personal trainer, they don't tell you, all right, you're going to do the exact same protocol as that bodybuilder over there, mm -hmm. even though you've never been in the gym before a day sure. in your life. That's not what happens. You start doing some mobility work. I'm someone who's recently, after a crazy international move in a pandemic, and who was just getting back into strength training myself. And even though I did it for four years in Toronto, my trainer was like, yeah, there was no way. You know, we're going to start off with a couple of weeks of mobility work, and then we'll, we'll assess where you are and take it from there. So... Very much like the gym, you know, those 10-pound dumbbells might feel like they weigh a 1,000 pounds, but with consistent effort and practice, 
over time they become too easy for us and mm -hmm. we go up to 15 or 20 mm -hmm. pounds and that's what we do with with fasting we cut out the snacks we go to meals it's so hard because like it's just such a stressful time mm -hmm. that meals have gone out the window so mm -hmm. it's been a lot of time working with people about food preparation and making it fun and doing it with families and or friends and just trying to make it enjoyable because that will make it a lot more sustainable to have meals or mm -hmm. even there are some better options these days if you do need meal delivery services or whatnot um, that can help you. Um, but it's really about getting that meal timing. Cutting out the snacking is just starting out at the gym with those 10 pound dumbbells. And then over time, depending on what your goals are or your needs, um, then we would titrate up the fasting just like we would titrate up the gym weight. Got it. You know, one of the questions I get a lot from my community is, well, instead of doing intermittent fasting, why don't we just do a keto diet or a low carb diet? What's your response to that? Yeah, so this is some the bulk of the people that come our way nowadays with such popularity for low carb or keto and even uh, certain like the American Diabetes Association recognizing low carb as a therapeutic approach. So, I mean, we love if we like to eat, right? Most of us right. really enjoy yeah. eating. I enjoy eating. Um, so why not just eat uh, and <laughs> not fast? But most of the people that come to us, this is the story. They've lost 50, about 80 pounds, but they can't lose that last 30 pounds. Right. Or they brought that diabetic marker, their A1C, down from 9 to 6. But why can't they bring it to 5.2 or lower and more of that optimal range that we're looking for? They think that maybe they're just too metabolically broken and they're coming to fasting kind of as a Hail Mary at this point. You know, uh, they, they don't know what else that they could do. But it really comes down to that chronic stimulus of insulin throughout the day. Um, and when you eat almonds, when you eat olives, when you eat a, a piece of uh, cheese from like a raw goat milk, you are getting an insulin response. And that chronic insulin response throughout the day, that, that causes aggravation to the system. And that leads to the development of insulin resistance itself. So when these individuals come to us, I'm not telling them to eat any less. You know, they're already reduced the volume of food they're consuming substantially because they're off of their fine and processed junk that you know they can literally eat till the cows come home because mm -hmm. it never satiates them. To eating these real whole foods, prioritizing healthy natural fats like salmon, avocados, olive oil, coconut oil. Um, they're eating these foods, so they're already eating volume a lot less. Mm -hmm. And it's not that I don't want you to eat those olives or eat those almonds, just eat them with your meals sure. and minimize the number of times a day that we're secreting insulin. Yes. There's a few different ways we explain insulin resistance. One of them is, is, you know, if you were to eat some junk or eat a big bowl of spaghetti, um, you would produce a lot of insulin. So it's like a hundred people coming to your door. It's going to be really aggravating to you to have a hundred people outside your front door. But imagine you're trying to work from home and every hour, one person knocks at your door nonstop mm -hmm. at the end of the day, that's going to be very aggravating to your system. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we understand if we were to listen to a song on repeat, um, probably by the end of the day, after several hours of listening to it over and over again, we would have some resistance towards that song. But even hearing that song played every day after so many days, you know, even if it's just once a day, it's very aggravating to the system. 
And we, so we develop insulin resistance by this chronic stimulus of insulin, even when it's low levels. And individuals whose systems are already filled with insulin, even a drop of insulin is going to cause the system to overfill. So, you know, I'll tell like a diabetic um, that their, their bodies are full of insulin. Like this mug would be full of, this is full of green tea moments before <laughs> the session. Um, but it's just like adding another drop. And if their systems are already full, it's going to over, overflow. So all of these individuals that have reached some great success with some variation of a low-carbohydrate diet um, but can't reach the optimal range and they get stuck is, you know, we've got to arrange that meal timing. And as soon as we do, it's not that they have to do a seven-day fast or a five-day fast every other week or they need to do crazy fasting. Just get rid of the snacking. Keep the foods. Keep the quantity. Just be mindful of how many times a day you're actually right. causing your body to seek secrete insulin in response to food. Well, we are here with uh, Megan Ramos. She's an expert in the uh, field of intermittent fasting, and we're coming down to the end of the formal interview. Uh, in terms of the audience, if you've got questions, you can type them in and uh, we can read them to Megan. But I guess my last question would be, what are the maintenance strategies? Do you, you know? Do we have to fast forever or... You know, what do you suggest? Yeah, you definitely don't need to be fasting for days on, days on end forever. When you are looking to treat a condition like metabolic syndrome, mm -hmm. you do need to think of fasting as a therapy during that time. Um, but once you're done uh, with that, then you can eat more often. Most people can't imagine eating more often. Uh, prior to moving, my husband and I were at a restaurant in Toronto, a steakhouse that we liked, and people around us you know, were eating multiple courses in that meal. And my husband said, can you imagine, like this is like their third meal of the day, plus they've had snacks. Like, can you ever imagine going back to a time? Like this is our first meal of the day right now, and we're eating <laughs> as much food as that. Um, most people can't go back to those old habits of snacking and grazing and eating all of these meals all the time. It doesn't feel right. I'm even in, I'm in a family planning stage of my life. Uh, 2022 is going to be the year, hopefully that we expand our family and I'm trying to eat a bit more often. And it's just painfully annoying at this point <laughs> to try to eat multiple meals a day. Um, so we do want to be mindful as we reach our health goals and go into this maintenance that we are not chronically stimulating insulin secretion all day, but you could go back to a place where you're having three square meals a day or two meals a day, or even one meal a day. So long as that meal is uh, nutrient rich and you're getting in a diversity of nutrients throughout the week and you're getting in plentiful natural fats and you're feeling good during that. I find most people, once they reach their health goals, you know, someone like me, I was sedentary. I was a slug or a sloth, you know, when I wasn't feeling well. And then I'm healthy and it's like, okay, I want to do Pilates class. I want to do dance classes with my husband. I want to learn how to do strength training. Mm -hmm. So if the level of activity is higher, most people will do two meals a day and they'll maintain doing sort of the 16 to 18 hour fast. And mm -hmm. that's where I find most people fall for maintenance yeah. strategies. Yeah, I find that too. That's a that's a nice zone to be in, at least at the beginning. And um, so we have a question from the audience. Uh, this is from David, and he writes, "Butter is my friend. What should I do?" 
<laughs> well, butter is a great friend. Um, I do think it's important to be mindful of quality, though, mm -hmm. when it comes to fats. There is a difference uh, versus, say, something like butter that comes from a, a grass-fed source versus uh, not a grass-fed, unpasteurized source. So we do want to be mindful of quality, but we definitely have plenty of butter in the Ramos household. Uh, we're in California now, since everything nowadays is online. Um, we're not in Toronto, so we even have raw butter, but it's something that we definitely cook with, especially when we are cooking at a bit higher temperatures. Mm -hmm. um, it's great to uh, great addition to cook with. Now, if you're someone who's looking to fast but not necessarily lose a bunch of weight, um, you could slather that grass-fed butter, you know, on your vegetables, on your grass-fed steak, or uh, you, you can really add it up. And if you're someone who's looking to lose weight, you would just use that butter throughout the cooking process, but you wouldn't necessarily slather it on top of any of the food that you're eating. But uh, Good quality butter is yeah. uh, gets thumbs up uh, in our household. Yeah, very good. Thank you. Next question. Uh, this is from Keith. I fast for twelve hours but get lightheaded and nauseated. I try to go longer. Do you have any suggestions? Yeah, so it's always important that you get checked out by your by your healthcare uh, provider before you start fasting. Um, but hydration is really important mm -hmm. to everybody who's new when they're fasting. When you fast, your insulin levels are going to fall rapidly, and insulin causes our body to retain water. So what happens when the insulin levels fall is it sends a message to the kidneys saying, hey, kidneys, we can get rid of some of this excess water since the insulin isn't here. Uh, and so we'll see increased urination. And throughout that increased urination, we are going to lose electrolytes, which is mm -hmm. to my second point about hydration. Hydration is not just water. It mm -hmm. is also electrolytes. Mm -hmm. So we encourage most people that pull off the water you have in the morning, put in a pinch of salt. Uh, and maybe do so a few times throughout the day. And myself have very weak adrenal glands uh, and have very low blood pressure due to some hormonal imbalances to my own adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. They're a lovely gift from my mother. <laughs> and so I actually take salt a cup, a, a, about a quarter of a teaspoon every two to three hours on a fasting day, uh, and then supplement with magnesium as well. Usually, if we can get adequate sodium and adequate magnesium on our fasting day, it helps maintain healthy levels of additional electrolytes like potassium and calcium, phosphorus. So we don't mess around with those too much unless there's a medical condition mm -hmm. or someone's on a certain medication that warrants warrants that. So we you know, one thing to always ask your pharmacist or your doctor, hey, am I taking any medications like heart medications that might lower my potassium levels, for example? Uh, and and let them know, and, you know, I want to start doing some fasting, I'm going to be losing excess water, should I be supplementing uh, with some potassium supplementation. Sure. So we'll usually, uh, you know, if we're seeing a patient in the clinic, we'll assess that, or we'll ask them uh, to assess that with their healthcare team. Great. Next question. When you begin intermittent fasting, was it challenging from a social perspective, you know, given food, and grazing is such a regular part of our social culture. 
Yeah, um, it's tough for so many of us. I am no exception. I, I, I don't even think age uh, demographic matters because I've worked with people uh, who are much younger than me and, uh, you know, up into individuals in their 90s. <laughs> Everybody seems to have a happening social calendar, but it's difficult. I might not look the part, nor is my name, but I come from an Italian household where until I moved to San Francisco, the whole family lived within a 30-minute radius. Uh, so it was all about going to grandma's house or stuff like Nono's house or Nono's house or someone's house on the weekends and just eating galore, especially foods like pasta and bread. And of course, all of it was homemade, but it's still starchy. So it was quite quite challenging. Um, I found socially, you know, I tried to... Uh, arrange things uh, for the days that I would be eating. And I encourage people to do this too. Mm -hmm. If my best friend wanted to go grab a dinner, say on Wednesday, I'd say, oh, you know what? I have a yoga class on Wednesday. Could we go on Thursday instead? And I wasn't lying. I would do yoga at dinner time instead of eat at dinner time on Wednesday. Uh, and she would say, sure. And we would just uh, arrange things around. Or sometimes I would just rearrange my fast. I remember my mom's 60th birthday was on a fasting day. Um, so I just rearranged my fasting that week mm -hmm. so I could make sure that I could eat and enjoy mm -hmm. or just do a shorter fast that day. Mm -hmm. So you do, there is some planning uh, and strategy that needs to go into it. But from, from a social perspective, it was quite easy to navigate. It's definitely difficult if you let people know that you're fasting. I, I don't think I, I've, I've never recommended and I've never personally said, oh, you know, I, I'm not going out to dinner with you tomorrow because it's a fasting day. Can we go another day? Okay. Usually uh, I'll explain what I'm doing in lieu of fasting. Sure. Uh, Pilates class, gym, I've uh, got some work to do um, rather than just throw the, the word fasting because that can be a scary word for, for some individuals. Sure. Um, when it comes to holidays, especially like my, I'm Italian, uh, my husband's family is Puerto Rican, any culture, you know, holidays, family meal times are huge. And I'll typically set a timer on my smartwatch or my smartphone. I mean, these things are glued to us nowadays for about uh, 60 to 90 minutes. So when I show up at my mom's or my mother-in-law's or my husband's godmother's, I set my timer and I enjoy. I enjoy the, mm -hmm. the vegetables, the meats, the whatever's available, and then I cut it off. So I'm not trying to fast while everybody's enjoying appetizers or d'oeuvres. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to isolate how much I'm eating at these holidays. Mm -hmm. And that's been a strategy that's worked well for me and so many of the people that I've worked with. Great. I love it. I love it. And I'm in the same boat because socially I do a lot of fasting. And, you know, when there's social situations, I do have to plan ahead. And that's a good reminder for us. Uh, so I want to go to the next question. What about coffee? Coffee in the morning while fasting. Do you have any advice for that? Yeah, so we really want to minimize the amount of insulin that we're going to be secreting. And we want to ensure that we are burning our own body fat rather than fueling off of liquids throughout the day. So when it comes to coffee, we prefer that you have it black. 
And then you need to know your, where you are with caffeine. So I'm an individual that does terrible with caffeine. I enjoy my decaffeinated green tea you know, once or twice a day. Um, so some people seem to do okay on caffeine, a little bit of it, and others it's a huge stimulant and it causes all kinds of issues. Yeah. You know, when, uh, people are already, we understand uh, when I see a new patient, I understand, you know, you've cut out all of this food. Now I'm asking you to cut out all of these meals and adjust your social calendar somewhat. Um, but when it comes to coffee, we'll say, you know, are your blood sugar levels going up substantially? Are you feeling hungry rather than satiated? Uh, and I find the response is about 50, 50. Uh, so if someone is feeling hungry, is noticing an increase in their blood sugar levels, tend to be having a stronger cortisol response right. to that caffeine and mm -hmm. that coffee. So we would encourage them to try something less caffeine, like maybe a cup of green tea or something like a matcha tea. Uh, right. So it's a Japanese green tea with a slower release of caffeine and, and a bit less caffeine um, just to help them get off of it. But we would encourage them to work on reducing caffeine like I unfortunately <laughs> had yeah. to do myself. Right. Um, okay, next question. Uh, this is uh, from a listener. You mentioned, I believe it's AIC as a marker for health. Does that ring a bell? Which, one, which other ones do you look at and what is the ideal goal? Yeah, so hemoglobin A1C is sort of this yeah. 120 a day average of your blood sugar levels being reported in this percentage. Uh, optimally, I mean, I don't think it's the most ideal biomarker uh, that is uh, available, um, but uh, we tried to get it under 5.2. Of course, you don't want it too low, but a 4.5 to 5.2 range, even 4.5 to 5 is something that we target. Um, with fasting insulin, that's another marker that we do look at, but we look at trends with it rather than isolated incidences. So when we had our Toronto clinic, it was something we actually tested every four to six weeks with individuals um, or three months uh, in just a weight loss population. Uh, and we look at trends because it could be sensitive. You could have had a poor night's sleep or got stuck in bad traffic, or there could have been someone disruptive at the blood lab, um, and that can cause these big swings in your insulin. But in general, we'd like to see that fasting insulin trending under five um, for someone with type okay. 2 diabetes or metabolic that. syndrome. Usually they're much greater than mm -hmm. five. And then we, of course, we look at sort of your triglycerides, um, mm -hmm. how much free fatty acids you have floating around. Now there's a caveat to this. You don't necessarily want to be doing a long fast going into your blood work because when you are doing longer fasts, you're largely fueling on free fatty acids. So you're true. going to see those levels be quite elevated. Yep. So we encourage people not to do more than 14 hours of fasting for a few days uh, right. before they do blood work. Mm -hmm. And then on your blood work, we look at the triglycerides just to see where they are. And mm -hmm. we we definitely want them under one, one uh, uh, I'm using Canadian units in my head. <laughs> but, yeah. You know, we, we want them sort of under 100, um, uh, trending down less than less than 80 would be ideal. And then we look at the ratio of, of HDL to triglycerides. We definitely mm -hmm. want it to be greater than one and not mm -hmm. less than one. Mm -hmm. um, 
so those are some some of the key markers that we look yeah. at. Uh, yeah. C-reactive protein. Too. Right. Yeah. You know, I use blood markers also, and um, <clears throat> I have to be careful uh, with patients in terms of what they're doing uh, because sometimes the the results are a little skewed. But they do give you a good marker. And I appreciate the question. I appreciate your answer. Uh, it certainly confirms the things that I'm doing. Let's go to the next question. Um, are there any liquids other than water that you can drink? And this listener is, you know, recommending things like bone broth or green tea. What What are your uh, recommendations? Yeah. So I mean, we touched base a little bit on black coffee, um, caffeinated, yeah. decaffeinated. Uh, it depends on your health goals and your own uh, N equals one response to to that. Um, but definitely herbal teas, green tea as well um, are okay. You just need to be mindful. Uh, you don't want to be adding a lot to it, especially things like fat. You want to make sure that you're fueling off of your own body fat uh, and adding fat to those beverages might slow things down. Um, we're big proponents, actually, in our fasting community of sugar-free pickle juice. It's essentially oh, water, some vinegar, uh, and then dip, like garlic and dill mm -hmm. um, spices. And it's a great way to keep your electrolytes up during a fast. Right. It doesn't interfere with the integrity of the fast. Again, we want to minimize the amount of insulin that we're secreting and the number of times we're secreting insulin during the fast is our, our, our the real intention behind our fasting days uh, at our program. So pickle juices, uh, mm -hmm. we're very pro that. Um, it's a great alternative for those who don't like broth. And broth on broth is great. I I drank so much bone broth when I first started fasting because of my sluggish adrenal glands. Mm -hmm. I was self-conscious of my body odor. I thought I smelled like a chicken. Oh, yes. um, yeah. uh, but it <laughs> it's important when it comes to broth, have it if you need it. Don't have it if you don't. Like it, it just don't have it just because just because uh but if you're starting to feel tired or fatigued or if you know you're going to be doing a workout um or the weather's really hot and you need to be mindful of your electrolytes then absolutely have some broth and the thing with the broth too is that we don't want to be in a position where we're having to reheat it multiple times right. you know make your cup of broth sit down enjoy your cup of broth isolate that period of time that you'll be secreting insulin in a response to it even though it's negligible um really in the big scheme of things uh, one cup is negligible but uh don't graze on it don't snack on it and that's the same thing if you did need to add a little bit of fat to your tea or coffee and we understand people are coming out of adding all kinds of garbage to their mm -hmm. tea and coffee so if you need to add a little bit okay that's fine work mm -hmm. on eliminating it but try to isolate it don't reheat that fatty coffee several times throughout right. the morning yeah okay we have time for one more question and uh gosh, this has been so informative this is from Shireen, and she's writing, what do you think, Megan, of protein shakes for breakfast? We eat a very high-quality one every day for breakfast, which gives us amazing energy for four hours. So uh, there's different approaches. Different things are going to work better for individuals. 
there's some people in our uh, that I've worked with in our clinic and our program that will do breakfast to breakfast fasting, or they'll eat breakfast and lunch and skip dinner, and that's how they choose to do their fast. Um, and that's fine if that works uh, works best for works best for you. Most individuals find it easier to cut out breakfast, and a big reason why we've sort of skewed that way in our sort of our mainstream materials is. Because a lot of the people we work with are diabetics, and they're seeing this dawn phenomenon in the morning. Right. Now, we all have dawn phenomenon, but diabetics have a more intense version of it, where our blood sugar levels go up in the morning time. So for a non-diabetic, it's, you almost can't tell. But for someone who's diabetic, it is substantial, and it's very frustrating, because they said, you know, I've just been fasting at least for 14 hours. Why are my sugars going up in the morning? This is the body just trying to purge extra sugar and all that, or trying to fuel you and do you a favor uh, in, in the morning time. So we typically prefer that people, if they're experiencing this dramatic dawn, uh, dawn effect, dawn phenomenon in the morning, that they burn that off first before adding more into their their system. And then, of course, you know, when it just comes to, to shakes, you know, being mindful of this good quality protein, am I adding just a ton of fruit in there? Fructose, we, we always need to be mindful, is a sugar too. Um, so we don't want to be flooding, flooding our systems with that. So I, I've definitely been known to have a fattier shake uh, as, uh, as a go-to, you know, along with a cup of broth every now and then for lunch on a hectic day. Um, but just being mindful about how much fructose is in that exactly. shake as well, especially in the morning time. Mm -hmm. So Megan, how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so the best way uh, to reach out is through our website, thefastingmethod.com. There you'll find links for all of our social handles for YouTube uh, and for okay. our podcasts. We have right. a, a podcast called The Fasting Method yeah. that you can find on all, all major podcasts. It's a good one. <laughs> I highly recommend it. I've listened to it. And um, I want to thank you so much uh, for sharing this with us. And uh, folks, uh, follow Megan, Dr. Jason. Uh, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Dr. Sam, and everybody for listening. And happy fasting. Yeah. Thank you for listening. I hope you learned something from the iClarity podcast show today. If you enjoyed the episode, make sure to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify and leave a review. See you here next time.